My guest this week knows a thing or two about podcasting. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital and fellow podcast host of The Fort. On this episode, we dive into what they're doing at Fort Capital and a lot more that's going on here in Fort Worth. Go ahead before the episode starts, subscribe now and share with a friend. Thanks. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. All right, let's jump right on in. I'd love to hear kind of what led you to start the podcast and we can take it from there. Yeah, I started the podcast December 2018 and I probably hadn't listened to my first podcast until maybe end of 2017. So that whole year leading up to it, I I saw myself spending a lot more time listening to podcasts and music and was becoming super fascinated with it, was learning a bunch from it, and it was just becoming kind of my go-to. And then I married that with, I just felt like I was in this really fortunate position in my life that I had some really interesting conversations very often with people in business, people I respected, and always conversations that I just always thought, man, if only other people could hear this. And so those kind of two things, I I kind of bit the bullet and did it. I was on somebody's podcast in November, and I remember walking out of there and just saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I emailed TCU and said, is there anybody up at TCU <laughs> doing podcasts? And I said, yeah, there's this guy, Johnny, and he's the podcast king of TCU. There's one guy. There's one guy. And I, uh, I emailed him and the rest is history and um, started, I guess, almost a year ago. Nice. Yeah, I think I reached out in February. So awesome. yeah. All right, let's take a quick step back. I think for I know you get asked this all the time, but tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing at Fort Capital for somebody that might not know. Cool. Fort Capital is a real estate investment company uh, that I started my freshman year of college. Um, fast forward today, we have 20 employees, obviously based in Fort Worth, Texas focused on buying commercial real estate across the state of Texas and looking to go into new states in 2020. We're also developing a large project here in Fort Worth called the River District, where we are recording this podcast right now, which is a mixed-use development along the Trinity River that has housing, retail, office, and restaurant. And yeah, on the second side of Fort Capital, we have a, a small venture capital arm that's invested uh, almost $11 million in startup companies out in Silicon Valley and some throughout other parts of the United States. But I'd say 90% of what we do is real estate investment. Awesome. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, for the River District, what else can we expect here? I mean, obviously, there's a ton of apartments coming up, it looks like. But uh, what are some things that are coming here in the next year or two? Yeah, so you're starting to see the world kind of colonize again into these districts. And so a a lot of cities um, that are growing more rapidly and even in more mature cities like New York, you have all these districts, Soho, and I act like I know where all the districts (laughs) are. I just feel like every time I hear about New York, there's like 12 different districts. Yeah, we need a map. Yeah, get, get a map. But what you'll see here is we're taking advantage of the Trinity River. So the river surrounds us on three sides. We're in the middle of some of the Uh, most prominent neighborhoods in Fort Worth. So there's a great population that surrounds us on on almost every side. We are really close to downtown. So it's about a six-minute drive downtown and a three-minute drive to West 7th. And so we will see more 
types of housing. So multifamily, we have townhomes, we have single family homes, anywhere from 350,000 all the way up to two and a half million. So different price points. And then we have the option where you could buy an existing house and live in that or remodel it. And so we've kind of broken it down into, we almost have five different price points that people could enter our district into, which is kind of rare. If you look at West 7th, kind of one it, it's it's upscale apartments or it's upscale condos if you if you're not in that upscale world you're not going to fit in um, on a price point level and so we offer a, a wide variety on the commercial side um, we're seeing a lot of being in a downtown high-rise office building isn't what it used to be you're seeing a lot of companies want to branch out yeah. and be in not just smaller buildings but buildings that are maybe closer to their homes um, that have more character to them um, and so we'll continue to build more office and a lot of the folks that are officing here probably live within a couple mile radius of where we are. And then we've been really focused on bringing new restaurants into the area. So food and beverage is a high driver of traffic and we've been successful so far in getting successful local restaurant tours to do a second location here. Um, Tim Love has come into the area, Salsa Limon, Heim Barbecue. Got a few more that we're working on that we'll announce later this year. But our goal is to make this a really cool kind of walkable community on the west side of Fort Worth. Yeah, I mean, a ton of questions from that. I mean, now that there's Clear Fork and all these different areas within Fort Worth that are all relatively pretty close, like, do these compete against each other significantly or is there enough room for it? That's something I'm just personally curious about. Yeah, it's like friendly competition. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly Fort Worth is kind of weird. If, you, if, you, if you're listening and you've been in Fort Worth for a long time, it's just kind of this weird phenomenon. I-30 kind of splits the city in half or at least it splits the west side of Fort Worth in half. And in a lot of ways, it might as well be like the Nile River. People north of 30 don't really have a reason to tra travel south of 30. And people south of 30 have really no reason to come north of 30. And so when I think of like Clear Fork, is like they're always going to win on the, the, the big retail brands, yeah. big restaurants, high dollar names. So that's a different market we're not really competing on. But as far as like living quarters and amenities, you don't really see as many people deciding whether to be where we are or where they are. You either want to be on that side of town or this side of town, but very rarely are you kind of looking at both. So from that perspective, I don't think we're competing. And I would just add the more districts that pop up, the more cool neighborhoods there are, it's better for everybody because yeah. future employers coming into cities, you know, they're looking at where could my employees live having options and places with different character and different types of things to do. It, it's a net positive for everybody. Yeah. Last personal question, then I'll get back to the questions I actually had. <laughs> what are the schools like here as a future parent? Uh, schools in the River District? Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. So we're in Castleberry ISD, That's right. um, which is not Fort Worth ISD, um, which is actually not a bad thing because of Fort Worth ISD. It's a great thing. Castleberry ISD is a very insulated district. They run by their own kind of rules and, and governing, um, have their own funding sources. And because they're not lumped in with this huge district, um, they're able to invest in a lot more programs in their school than like a, a Fort Worth ISD would be able to that's competing for resources. So they are the, the one stat I would say is one, they're um, above average school systems great uh, student base and, and great kind of PTA and parents that are involved in the school. The one key kind of thing that if anybody would remember about it 
talking about it on the podcast is they have it's six or seven Wi-Fi towers around the whole district. And every student has access to free Wi-Fi. And they are the first school district in the state of Texas to be able to offer that to an entire school district. And you would think, you know, it's in River Oaks. It's, you know, you would have thought that that would have happened in like some very upscale neighborhood. And this has happened in our district and it's been a phenomenal thing. And so no, if you go to school at Castleberry ISD, you will have free Wi-Fi provided to you, which is incredible. Awesome. All right, we can get back to the questions I actually planned. You've talked a lot about thinking of Ford Capital as more than a real estate company, more of a tech company. I guess, why and when did you make that shift? Yeah, so when we say we're we're more like a tech company, I think you're seeing real estate has been a really archaic industry. Um, there has not been a lot of technology, software that has entered the industry and software um, or technology coming from Everything from Airbnb, which 10 years ago, if I had said, hey, man, let's go out of town and stay in somebody's house. Yeah, you would have in said, Spain. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like, hell no. Yeah, no exactly. way. Now it's, you can't, you almost can't go on a trip without saying like, hey, should we Airbnb while we're there? Yeah. Um, it's bigger than the top three hotel companies in the world combined Airbnb's market cap is. Um, and that's happened in 10 years. So technology in that regard, all the way to, we use a software called Juniper Square which manages all of our investors and does all of our investor reporting, I would make an argument. It would take four to five people full time to be able to deliver the same quality of reporting that we can do with just a software. All the way to softwares that manage buildings now and are able to make tenants experience better in the building to things like your local operator can now have, you know, thumbprint ID when you walk in a building, lots of hardware that's being built for real estate. You're seeing it come from every angle And so it's happening in every industry. But when we say that we're starting to think more like a technology company is it is how can we build software internally, not only to run our company, but also partner with incredible technology brands to make ourselves function more like a company of the future rather than a real estate company of the past. And so mainly through that lens. Awesome. Yeah, I like it. The Juniper Square was was a great episode. You've been operating strictly here in Fort Worth from a company headquarters perspective. Has it been difficult to find tech talent in different places or different talent like that over time? Or what's your experience been like that growing a tech and real estate company here in town? Yeah. So to think about it is it is a real estate company that runs more like a tech company. And so we have a director of technology that was a diamond in the rough to find. I mean, this guy's exceptional. We have put out to hire two software engineers, both a front end, a full stack engineer and a front end designer engineer in Fort Worth. And it has been excruciatingly painful. (laughs) I mean, either they don't exist or the the cost to have to pay someone to, to relocate into Fort Worth into a scene that is probably a risky tech scene. It's not like yeah. if they move here and things don't work out with us. There's 10 other tech companies they could go work for. You know, we thought it would be a lot easier. And now we're we're outsourcing almost all of our software engineering jobs, either overseas or around the country. I mean, there's a huge community of, of folks that you can hire kind of ad hoc and um, at will employment to work on special projects. But and it's also probably the company we are. So we're not when I say we're a tech company is like we think like a tech company. Yeah, for sure. 
it's um, there are tech companies in Fort Worth that probably have hundreds of software engineers, yeah. but for a company like ours, it's a probably looks at as a little more of a risky situation, and and we, our budget to probably hire these type of people isn't what it is at maybe a VC backed tech company or a yeah. private equity backed tech company that you know that's their world. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of even employers with a thousand employees that probably have teams of engineers. They're still having difficulty getting people, or the cost is so much higher than Dallas. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the cost of a software engineer. And we don't have to take the podcast there, but some of the thoughts I have, there's such a shortage of them, yet none of the universities around the world are really teaching or are optimizing for software engineers. These these are the best engineers in the world are the kids like coming out of their parents' basement. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge shortage there. And then you look at jobs like people want to be social media managers these days. Social media manager doesn't pay a whole lot. Yeah. It's like Especially since Instagram just took away your likes. So now what are you going to measure? Right. What are you going to measure? Like, yeah. I, but then you start looking at jobs and where my head has been. And we buy a lot of industrial real estate. And so the tenants that are in our buildings are kind of the, I call them, they're the guts of America. They're your service providers, your yeah. construction industry. And it's so robust, yet it's so unsexy. Nobody wants to talk about being a plumber. No. But I would tell you, if you go look at jobs right now, you can get paid six figures to be a plumber. And you could like, I think there will be this new whole revolution going back into the blue collar world. We're having, if you could make being a plumber or a painter or a roofer cool again, manufacturing jobs, like the starting job prices keep escalating because nobody wants to do that anymore. Everybody wants to be again, like a, an influencer or a social media manager, <laughs> like all these tech. A TikTok king. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I don't really know if that answered the question. Other yeah, than it did. It, it has been very difficult as a small business in Fort Worth to hire tech talent. Yeah. All That's right. probably my answer. Yeah. I mean, just curious for the listener that maybe is struggling with it too. Like, where are you going online to, because it sounds like you found a Band-Aid approach online outsourcing it. Like, what resources do you yeah. utilize for that? They're going to kill me if they're listening because we've worked with them. We use a headhunter out of Dallas. We post on all the major tech websites. Yeah. But most of the people, anybody that's even interested is coming from out of town. Yeah, for sure. But on a contract basis, yeah. uh, are there websites that you can go to to oh, I yeah. guess, get talent in the meantime? Yep. There are several websites where you can hire freelance people yeah, yeah. for projects. And they're all different types of sites. Um, our director of technology is really into that world. And I mean, he's worked with people in Russia. We have two people that work for us in India, a group in Mexico. Um, and then we have some local DFW people that work on an ad hoc basis. But what you find is you find a ton of people super talented. And I think that's, again, another part of where the world's headed is some people are looking at it as like, why would I have a full time job if I could just work these pro like do yeah, these projects. sprints through projects yeah. and get a diverse work set? Just curious, I mean, what has been, I guess, the biggest surprise 10 years into running the business? I'm sure you get asked a variation of this question, but... That's a really good... No, it's a really good question. I would say the biggest thing for me in my position, like I started this thing when I was 17. Yeah. And I think just being candid, the motives are really selfish. It's like, I want to... I wasn't like this huge mission-driven CEO at yeah. 17 that wanted to change the world. I just Who wanted is? to buy real estate and yeah. like 
that, make and, money. Have and fun. at the time, to be frank, like mission-driven companies in 04, was like, and Tom's Shoes wasn't even around yet. It's a whole different world. But then as the time goes by, I think where I continue to like put a lot of thought, and I certainly am so far from being good at this, but I think just recognizing it is where I could give myself a pat on the back, is my job has become so much the more I make it less about me, the more successful it becomes. And so that's, I'm not getting great at any one part of the business anymore, like acquisitions or asset management or, yeah. but I'm trying to find people, the right people in the right seats to put on the bus to, to work and be super patient. My intention is, you know, as a founder that started really early on was if something wasn't working, like I fixed it, I did everything. Yeah. I needed it done yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. But the second I knew it would needed to be done, it was already late type situation. And you just have to give more patience and give more accountability, people in ownership, let them fail, be okay with watching failure happen because success has come. And so the biggest surprise, if you had asked me five years ago, like how my job would look totally different is I spend a lot more time trying to do less doing any one thing great and being a good leader and finding great people that can do the things. And that's just totally different. Like I didn't get it. I'm leading people now. I'm not buying houses anymore. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily, you don't always know that's what you're signing up yeah. for. Get in the business for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you hit on it there, like the whole mission and vision. What, what are your takes on, on that and the importance of that going into the next decade, if you will. Yeah, it's radically changing. Um, I think a lot of what you can see in the media can be misinterpreted. And I mean that by saying at the end of the day, a business needs to be profitable to exist. Yeah. Um, first and foremost. So, so you have to build a business that can sustain and be profitable with under market forces that isn't having some type of subsidized deal. Having said that, I think if you look at companies at the earlier part of like the, the 20th century, it was more run like a dictatorship and we're here to make money for our shareholders. And like, that's what you heard. Shareholders, shareholders, shareholders. Well, there's so many other stakeholders in the chain, the employees, the communities, um, the city governments, like there's just so many people impacted by a, by a robust business. And I think in the world we live in today where things are so visible and transparent, like you have no choice but to be a company that is going to take care of way more than just your shareholders. And the thought being is if you do that and you do it really well, you can actually provide a lot more capital to your shareholders mm -hmm. than ever before. And so <clears throat> it's been part of our, you can call it strategy or part of how we think is like being a good steward to Fort Worth um, and the community is important to us. And so again, I didn't get into that business of being a good steward to Fort Worth, but yeah. you realize along the way that being a good steward to your hometown and giving back to the community or voluntary services or hiring people out of TCU. I mean, there's so many ways to help the community, mm -hmm. not just charitable things, but um, even in the business world and just trying to use your business. You can now with even this podcast, you can use your business to reach a whole other audience yeah, and sure. impact people's lives in ways that you just couldn't before. And so, yeah, we're not Tom's Shoes where we're, you know, buying a house and giving a house. <laughs> but I think it's table stakes to stay in business as you have to have a much broader vision than just your shareholders to exist long term. Let me know when you guys start giving away houses in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you've obviously interviewed and talked with hundreds of successful business owners. I mean, has there anything 
I guess, common themes for the most successful and happy ones that might have surprised you after? Because I mean, you've done roughly 40, 50 of these. Yeah. And then obviously meetings and different things like that. So I'd be interested to see if anything has surprised you there. I think the surprising thing is that there really are not a lot of surprises and success comes in all shapes and forms. So it's whatever your definition of success is, but there's no like get there quick gimmick tricks to being successful, except for like winning the lottery. But other than that, there's really no measure of success in that. People that have accomplished anything, whether it's um, athletically in business, in school, they always work really hard and they're fanatically passionate about it. Uh, It doesn't really, I, I have not found anybody that has been successful in their field that like didn't really like doing it, didn't show up much to to like it's an it's almost an obsessive um, part to it. The second they all, um, especially in business, can get along with people. They understand that people is business and business is people. Everything else is just a byproduct of what people are dreaming up. This building was a bunch of people doing different things, and then the building is what existed in the end. I think. The idea that there's this like perfect time to do things is silly. It's like if something is burning a hole in your head, like you starting this podcast, there's people, you know, that you'll meet in life that'll be like, you know, I really want to start this podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to get there soon. People that are um, doers just like start, they never wait for this perfect moment for all the stars to align because they never align. Usually you start something and we were talking about this before we started my first couple episodes of the, my podcast sucked. Oh, I had yeah. no idea what I was doing. I was um, super confident until like I got here <laughs> yeah. into actually your conference room. And yeah. it's like, oh God, like I have no idea what I'm doing. It was awful. Yeah. My first one was a, I had a cell phone sitting in the middle of the table with some app I had downloaded that would like record us talking. That's and cool. I didn't even, pre- like I thought it was recording. We did an hour deal and it never recorded. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, but it, that's kind of a, that's kind of just a <laughs> depiction of like, that's how everything is. People sucked at whatever. Every, anybody yeah. that's great at something sucked at it. So Tom Brady, when he was seven years old and threw a football for the first time, he sucked at it. He might have been. He might have gotten good quick, but the first time to do anything is just going to be um, a failure. So that leads kind of to kind of the next point: is people that are successful what they're doing. Failure is just a motivator. It's not a definer. So we talk about our office, fail quickly, learn, grow, repeat. The quicker you're willing to fail, it means you're taking risk. If you fail at the same thing over and over and over, you're either not learning from your mistakes or maybe like, if I'm like, I'm not going to go try and dunk a basketball. I'm going to fail every single time. Yeah. I know my limitations. I'm six feet. I have, a eight, I have an eight inch vertical, yeah, maybe seven and a half inches. I will fail at that over time. Having said that, buying real estate, it's something I've failed at a ton, but you just get better. So most successful people do not let failure define them. It just kind of keeps motivating them. And they also understand it's part of the journey. If your goal is to go into every single thing and be 100% perfect at it and not make any mistakes, one, that's impossible. But two, again, you're just, you've kind of flatlined. If you go to your job or the try, if you're trying to lose, you know, weight or you're trying to go to the gym, you ask a bodybuilder, why are your, why are your workouts 30 years into this so painful? It's not because, um, he's not in shape. It's because he keeps adding more weight. So the game always evolves. So you're always in that 
even as a bodybuilder, you can always be in pain when you're building. You never have topped out. So if he's going into workouts where he's not ever in pain, he's added no weight to it and he's not moving forward anymore. So the goal is not to be perfect. And and those are probably three common threads. We could probably talk about more, but yeah, I'll hit on the fanatical passion and kind of the importance of that to the whole mission and vision. Like, I guess a lot of people seem to be going to jobs for two years and go on to the next thing. Do you think that's healthy and then figuring out like where that passion is or what are your thoughts on that whole movement yeah, uh, for younger? I think the world was stru- re- was structured differently like our parents' age. Yeah, I sure. think about graduating college, there was no social media, there was no internet. You probably got some brochure like your senior year, and, and I'm probably totally botching this and it was way more intricate than this, but you probably got some sheet and it's like, here's 30 companies. Uh, you had to pick up the telephone or send a, you know, a letter because there was no email like, hey, I'm interested. Of those 30, only five of them were within driving distance. And so like it's it's a it's how the whole world is now. You can see all millions of companies now. So your mind, we're constantly yeah. trying to one up ourselves. But back then it was like, yeah, I'm going to go work at Coca-Cola and work here Probably. for 40 years. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> but I also think. Even then, it's pr- it's kind of crazy to tell like a 22-year-old, like, you should know what you're going to do the rest of your life. Yeah. And this commitment out of college is exactly what you're going to do. And I kind of fall on the boat and I'm probably, you go ask somebody that's been in their same career for 40 years, they'll probably tell you like, pick a career and stick with it for 40 years. I've been a tinker my whole life. So I like to learn new things. I like to see new things. The world is being built to give people more options, not less options. And so I'm not advocating that people should get a job and stick with it for just a year or two and leave. But I am advocating that if you're young, don't put so much pressure on yourself that you feel like the first three or four years out of college is going to define who you are. I would argue if you lived the life I lived in college, like you had a lot of growing up to do once college ended. Um, I was by no means like ready to, you know, be a super productive member of society the day after college. So I would end that by saying, if you are going to be somebody that jumps around from job to job, don't ever expect to be great at anything. And that goes back to being fanatical. It's hard to be fanatical about something you only do for a year or two at a time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end on that topic. So you've talked a lot on previous episodes about spending time thinking. Uh, I was curious how that's going for you and how much time you actually spend doing that? That's a great question. You're calling me on my my bluff. Um, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I've, I've done, let's see, this year I've thought for 30 minutes. Um, yeah. So uh, probably the nerdiest thing to know about me is I've listened to every Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting on YouTube from 98, which was the first year they started putting them up until 2019. Those can be short. Those are like six hour videos. So six hours times 20 something, that's 120 hours. That's like five days of my life have been dedicated to watching YouTube videos. I've read their books, but they have talked a lot about, and this is something back to what I've learned as time goes by, um, really successful people try and get more out of the way than in the way. And so I think when you're successful at something, you start believing that everything you do within that circle of influence is going to make things better. So if you see a problem, you get involved. If you hear something that you don't agree with, you offer an opinion. 
And every time you do that, you're kind of creating work and you're also kind of coming in with this idea that you know better than everybody else. And if the goal of the business was to always remain better than everybody else, your company will be really small because you just can't be better than a thousand people or a hundred people. Yeah. So a kind of a theme that I just think about a lot is how can I get more done by getting less involved, if that makes sense. And a lot of that goes back to your question about thinking when you're really early on in a company, and I'm using a company because that's how I can reference, but if you're a kid at home at high school, you spend a lot of the first part of your life like dreaming about what it's going to be like and thinking and like, because you don't really have a ton of, I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Pe there's people that take on a lot of responsibility really early on in life, but but relatively speaking, the responsibilities are very lax and, and and a lot lighter. You don't have family and kids and employees and everything. And then as time goes by, that dreaming that kind of made you successful or kind of got you down the path you wanted, that time to dream kind of keeps getting eaten away because you got to go into a meeting and you got to go to work and you got to jump on a call and you got to do this. And all of a sudden, like a year goes by and it's like, I didn't dream like one bit this year. I was so busy conquering my dreams of two years ago that I know how no longer have time to dream. And then I read this book by Peter Drucker and he just talked a lot about that the most successful CEOs or business people in the world look at success as how much time do they have to kind of sit in silence and think, not like how many meetings they attended. Meetings are like the death of a lot of people. I've also learned that like an hour meeting with a lot of people and it could not be more of a pointless thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. So to answer your question, I probably don't do as good of a job as I should do. But like some things, just recognizing the needing to think to be important, I would, I'm continuing to gravitate towards, you know, if I'm in the car, not turning on the music and just like, I, it's amazing just getting in the car, not turning on anything and putting your cell phone away. Nobody should be texting and driving anyway. But that is one of the biggest hacks of if you want to think, go drive and turn off everything and you're like forced to let your mind wander. Any bold predictions going into the next decade of real estate? Yeah, it's bold. It might be bold to some listeners. It's I'm fully convinced the autonomous vehicle will be. Yeah, that Hillwood episode was yeah. one of the the best ones I've heard. Yep. Yeah, I, I didn't realize they were doing half of that stuff. It's this. I mean, it's so close, and that will change everything. I mean, if how that relates to real estate, if if we don't need parking lots anymore, a lot of available land frees up in our society. I mean, think about a Walmart parking lot that needs like half of what it needed before. Yeah. Housing. Uh, a part, I mean, it just, it unlocks a lot of land opportunity, which isn't necessarily good for landowners in the short term oversupply price goes down, but it opens up a lot of room for development. Um, kind of my bold prediction. I think, I don't know if people hate when I say this, I'm just kind of a guy that speaks like the, what the data is showing. I think traditional universities are so screwed. I, I, I can't see my daughter who's two years old going to college like I did. I don't think they're educating people on where the world's headed. Um, it's a lot of like, it's archaic teaching methods that don't get the best out of people. It's unbelievably expensive to pay for things that you can learn on the internet. Yeah, I saw, I think, uh, one of the schools in Chicago just surpassed 100000 a year. It's like, unbelievable. Yeah, that's, yeah, TCU is expensive, but not that expensive. The The government's going to stop lending at the speed that they're, they're going to be forced to. And right now it's like, 
colleges can call their price because governments have no cap on what somebody can borrow to go to school. So yeah. if you get into Yale and it costs 100000 to go to Yale, that's what you're going to get. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying universe, but if they don't rethink the model and then you start seeing schools like Lambda School and a lot of these online universities that are letting people go for free and then basically doing a revenue share agreement with them post-college where... They say, if you don't get a job that pays you at least 50000 a year, you owe us nothing. So they have skin in the game. Okay. Right now, you go to a university, you come out quarter million dollars in debt, and you don't get a job. That this The university has no skin in the game. And then you just look at, like, where is money being spent online? Where is money being spent at the university level? I'm not seeing the big universities investing it in, like, tech programs that are teaching people how to code. I'm seeing it going into things like football stadiums, really nice buildings, endowments that just make more money. You know, now the football team has eight jerseys instead of one. But Christopher Columbus sailed the seven seas. Like you don't need to, you don't need to revamp that. But if I'm looking like, okay, well, what education is coming down the pipeline? It's not a lot of the stuff that's teaching about the future. And it's not a lot of the stuff teaching about like how to balance a checkbook, how to do real life activities that are really going to impact you, like why a credit score matters a ton. Even having this like life lessons 101 class, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I'm passionate about it. I think the universities need to change their model or it's going to be real tough to sustain. Do you see any doing it? I mean, I started following that Lambda school just on Twitter and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. I hadn't really looked into it too much. But so you don't really see any major universities. Purdue is the first school I've seen that's like a well-known university and there's probably more that um, are offering a similar program that's like an ISA. It's an income share agreement. Uh, again, if you don't make at least $50,000 a year, you don't have to pay anything. So they are so incentivized to get you a job or they're not getting paid back. Yeah, interesting. Um, Two of the previous guests over the past month have been deans of the med schools here. And sitting with them before is interesting just hearing like that whole business model and how like, a lot of it isn't even coming from the tuition, even though tuition's super expensive. I didn't realize that for those med schools, but yeah, I, obviously the endowments are super important. But interesting. I, when I went to school in O, when I graduated in 08, all in books, tuition, social, the whole deal. It's probably thirty six thousand a year to go to TCU. What yeah. is it? What is it now? It's like seventy. Yeah, 000. like it was going up, like. Because they started all the construction when I started in seven. Yep. And uh, I think my dad said it was going up. Tuition was going up like 8% every year we were there. So maybe I won't direct us towards TCU, but I would I would say, okay, it's gotten double as expensive to go to pretty much any university in the country. This isn't a yeah, TCU phenomenon. Absolutely. But is it like double the success rate? Is it what, what has doubled on the success side that should... Now, you take inflation and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. There's some of that's inflation. Um, but then I just look at like, what are, do people need to be trained for to go into the future? I mean, we were just talking about um, jobs in, back in like the heartland of America or, or the, the plumbing system of America or contractors. You're not optimizing for that in college. There's a huge shortage. And then you look at this huge shortage of tech workers. I mean, you cannot find a data scientist in this country. I mean, data scientists are now being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yet there's no major university besides like Carnegie Mellon and some of the very top elite Mm -hmm. um, universities in the country that even have a program for it. Yet it's the number one most needed job right now. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And you go talk to a lot of these universities, it's 
it's no to teach the masses that the only way for the price of a data scientist to come down is to train thousands of them and bring the supply up so the demand curve matches and you're just not seeing that at traditional universities but you're seeing badass football teams and baseball teams and i just don't think it's sustainable so i don't know if people hate to hear it but it's my bold prediction 10 years from now is um the model will change drastically We'll come back in 10 years and we'll see who's Deal. <laughs> All right. Uh, we can wrap up here with a few questions. Uh, what is one of the biggest problems in business you see that nobody's really tackling? I've been listening to far too many of my first million. So. Yeah. Um, that. Education. Yeah. The argument against it is like, well, where do people go to grow up and to yeah, socialize and to be on their own? And if everybody's learning everything online, like how do they get stage of their life where they mm -hmm. learn to grow up. And so, again, this isn't a call out to the, so the universities just need to rethink how they're going to position themselves going forward, which I think many of them will do. I mean, they're smart yeah. people. I just think the model is broken. So I would say um, a lot more money could be put into uh, how to educate people more affordably so that they're not left in a ton of debt. What do you think of the traditional broker model within real estate? I mean, you talked about it early in the show. I think insurance is very similar to that, uh, largely antiquated in many aspects, but I think there's progress happening. But I'd be interested to hear what your take on it, I guess, probably largely within uh, real estate. It, real estate's it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I continue to evolve my thoughts on this. And so I think what technology does in any industry is it optimizes to where the best people get way better at it because of technology and kind of the people that, you know, aren't as good or don't give it as much opportunity, technology kind of wipes them out. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of things, is like it optimizes for the best people to get stronger and for the people that are half in, half yeah. in get wiped out. And so in real estate, they're, they're huge transactions. I still think we're really far away from people, especially on the home side, if you're buying your first home, we're not to a point in society where you believe in a robot as like, yeah. like you want that person to go talk to and tell you that yeah, everything's going to be okay. At a certain price point, but yeah. yeah. Um, commercial real estate, I think, I think the amount that brokers will be able to charge might go down on a per transaction basis, but they should be able to make it up in the volume they're able to do. I mean, look, if you were buying a house like 50 years ago, there was no MLS online. There was no Zillow. You called the local real estate shop and said, yeah. hey, I'm going to stop by. Can you give me a telegram of the 50 houses that are listed? And I'm going to go get in my old car and drive around the city and, and look at them. You know, that whole transaction of even seeing the 50 homes that were available probably took you three weeks to do. Well, now you can do it on your iPad in an hour. Yeah. So it'll optimize to get more done, but the, I think the margins will get squeezed. And you're seeing it, every, I mean, financial institutions now, every major stock house is now $0 free trades. I mean, that's the new thing. Yeah. Now they're making it up in other ways, but so much of the transaction is now done at scale that I think... Um, tools will be made to make them much better more volume i think the the, the fees are going to start getting squeezed yeah awesome we can end with this question i definitely stole it from your show favorite interview question favorite interview question it's kind of funny i ask that question a lot and i probably ask it because well one i'm genuinely interested because i find myself working with people and interviewing more but it's usually trying to put somebody on 
in an uncomfortable situation and just it's not even the answer. It's seeing how they deal with it. So I will ask a lot of times, like, tell me about a really awful situation that you've been in and describe it to me and describe how you did all the way to um, if I asked your biggest enemy why they're your biggest enemy, like, what would they tell me? Yeah. And uh, the easy answer is like, uh, you know, I don't really look at it as a failure. My failures are my and that's fine. But then there's a lot of people that will describe it. And I think what I'm looking for in the whole deal, which is one of our core values, which is accountability, is people that have that are humble enough to talk about this disaster that they got in, but then deliver this answer that was like, I took total ownership and accountability for it. And whatever happened, happened. But I'm just trying to see like deflection of like, it was this awful deal, but it was kind of this guy's fault. And I, you know, I just happened to be there. Uh, <laughs> And it's, again, we test for our core values. And so accountability is is one of them. And so the, the real goal to there is to see like how they take accountability, not just for their successes, but for their failures. I like it. So. We can end there. I appreciate you coming on. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving the show a listen. Uh, please do me a favor. Before you stop listening, subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Uh, If you loved it so much and you've already subscribed, share this episode with a friend. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.